Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Hi, everyone. My name is Tishani Doshi, and I am really pleased to be um, moderating this discussion today uh, on behalf of the NYUAD Institute. I will be talking to two colleagues today, Sabine Javeri, who will be talking about a collection of short stories, Hijabistan, and Saba Karim Khan, whose debut novel is Skyfall. Um, Sabine and Saba. Welcome. I think um, I want to get uh, right into it. And I just want to say that um, the word diaspora for me has always been slightly frightening. I think partly because the first time I heard it, um, everyone seemed to know exactly what it meant except for me. And over the years, I've been trying to get closer to understanding this word, and I'm not sure that I necessarily have. It seems to change form and uh, shape. And because we are talking about the female diasporic voice today, I thought we could begin very simply by um, asking each of you to just sort of say what the diaspora means to you, how do you define it? Um, and then we have a sense of that in our heads before we launch into a discussion. Saba, you wanna go first? Sure, well, hi Sabine, hi Tishani, and, and thank you to the Institute for doing this. It's, it's an absolute privilege. Um, I hear you Tishani, I think, I think the word diaspora feels so loaded. Um, and I also find it interesting because a lot of times it becomes synonymous with physical distancing and movement, you know, and kind of this sense of I've got to be away from my place of origin. Um, whereas I think for me, the term is a lot more fluid and a lot more blurry. And I feel, of course, the physical distancing is part of it. But I could I could very much be part of an imagined community whilst being located, say, in my home. But but if I talk about Abu Dhabi briefly and I talk about, yes, this literal idea of being an expat, being part of the diasporic community here, I think for me that comes with a profound sense of loss. And I say that in relation to literature and storytelling in particular, because and maybe we can get into this later in the talk, but this sense of, um, do I have the right to tell stories about home? And kind of who gets to decide if I'm national enough to do that? And I think that the word diaspora is very loaded for me because of that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, what about you, Sabine? Um, yeah, well, thanks, uh, Tishani and uh, Sapa. That was really interesting. Um, so I'm also... Uh, with you on that, uh, when people call me um, a diasporic writer or when they call me anything really uh, besides my name, I don't understand why there is this reason to categorize or to box or to label. Um, however, being um, a scholar as well as a creative writer, um, I understand the need to categorize in order to understand um, things. So. I'm familiar with the term diaspora, having read post-colonial literature and associated it with, you know, people 
writing about home, a combination of nostalgia and imagination and looking back. And I've always associated the term diaspora with some sort of disconnect, uh, with some sort of displacement or dislocation. Um, and actually, I think the roots of the word uh, also originate from that, you know, the, the Greek word uh, diaspora and about, you know, people migrating. Um, I, in terms of uh, being a diaspora, I've been in Abu Dhabi for two years now. And um, before that, I was in Pakistan, but before that, I was in London, and before that, I was in the US. And so I tend to think of myself as, as a serial migrant. Um, and I'm also interested in this whole idea uh, that there is such a distinction between who gets to be called um, a diasporic and who gets to be called a migrant. Um, so I think the word has all sorts of connotations. Uh, and, you know, Sabah said it has the kind of a loss, but it also has a kind of richness. You know, it's all that extra layering around it, these added perspectives, um, added lenses. And uh, for me, it's, it's a way to sort of look back um, through another lens. Um, uh, again, you know, taking Sabha's point about it being a sort of a contested term in terms of, you know, who gets to um, speak, um, having these issues around authenticity, representation. Yes, that's there. Uh, but then there's also a kind of acknowledgement of distance, you know. Um, and I think in a way, um, it's easier to understand that the diasporic writer is writing from a different lens than the native writer, than the local writer who is experiencing things in real time because the diasporic writer is looking back. Um, so that's how I tend to think about this word and the literature associated with it. Okay, that's that's interesting. Let me just follow up, Sabine. Uh, there was this one line in a, a story of yours, The Adulteress, and it's about a woman who um, writes stories and begins to publish them. She's a, she's a wife, she's a mother of three. Um, and there's a line which really resonated and it, it, it goes, it was, where, it was then she realized that it didn't matter what stories they told other people. It was the stories we tell our own selves that mattered. Um, and I was really interested, since we are talking about fiction here, about the reflective nature of stories and why it's important to be able to place um, oneself in a story or to recognize self in story. And I think that's something that really recurs um, throughout the collection, this idea of recognition and reflection and you know, being able to somehow um, catch that reflection almost, otherwise you don't exist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the beautiful, uh, that's the beauty of creative literature. Um, because, you know, um, as we all wear various hats, uh, when I write as a scholar, I'm writing to expose, you know, I have some knowledge and I want to share it with the world and argument. But when I write um, creatively, I'm writing to explore, you know, I want to find out uh, something. And this idea of, you know, the, the line that you read out, um, 
it's it's something that's um, very close to my heart as well. This whole idea of, you know, it's not what stories we are telling others or what stories the world is telling. It's the story that we tell ourselves. You know, it's about self-knowledge. It's about self-perception as well. Um, and I think, again, it's really interesting because, you know, distance from what is your what you considered your homeland because home itself is such a contested word right um what is home where is home is home where you are at home or is home the place where you're from um so exploring that through this lens of stories um and you know not just convincing others but exploring you know, and just trying to find out what those various layers um, that add to the to the richness of the diasporic um, um, lens. And um, yeah, and in this particular story, it also was a way to explore the symbolic idea of the whale. Um, that, mm. you know, the whale is not always a very straightforward thing, such as a physical garment, but the whale is also that kind of curtain that we have between the self that we present to others and the real self, that authentic self that sometimes we ourselves are not aware of. Absolutely. I think that that comes through very clearly, um, that sense of um, uh, revealing and what's being hidden and what's real and what's assumed and, and you challenge all those things throughout the stories. Um, Sabah, I wanted to um, bring you in about this question of nostalgia, of home. I think uh, your novel begins with your protagonist sort of saying, I'm writing this blood-soaked love letter to my homeland. And the relationship with the homeland is quite, um, let's say, strained. It's uh, the evocations of Lahore are wonderful and brilliant and so um, real. But at the same time, she feels a real hatred uh, towards the place that she then leaves. And I wonder whether you could speak to this familiar push-pull tug that uh, so much of uh, diasporic fiction finds itself leaning more, I would say, towards you know, towards the yearning, but also uh, to the kind of sense of guilt maybe of, of not loving the place that you've left or, or along those lines. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think, uh, Tishani, distance and movement sort of allows you to see things through quite a different prism. And what I mean is, for me, the process of writing the book, but also kind of crafting its world, its characters, how they think, how they breathe through the pages. Um, it was really, I think a lot of it was tied to being in Abu Dhabi. And I, I, some of this I realized in retrospect. Um because I've always kind of seen place as working like a protagonist, whether it's in our lives, whether it's in our stories. And, you know, in the same way in the book, I see Lahore in New York, Lahore more so working as a protagonist. But in the same way, I think my being in Abu Dhabi now, I'd like to say over the last six years, but longer in the region, has somehow transmitted into the book in ways that even though the book is not about Abu Dhabi, I find it so powerful that experiences of being part of the diaspora and this push and pull that I felt have kind of made their way into the book. 
And I guess it comes from this space of, um, I guess in the Gulf, I've always felt this sense of a very liminal status. And I know I'm not in it alone. You know, you belong. And at the same time, do you really belong? And I guess that fluidity has made me really think carefully and almost kind of like recalibrate some of these very fundamental relationships with home, with the state, with my people, with my kin, you know, who they are and all of that, all of that. And and so when it came to writing Skyfall, I realized that a lot of that had fed in because my relationship to Pakistan, where I'm from, or my relationship to Asabine was saying home and what that really is, has been well strained, but also just like it's it's also just been quite polemic and quite schizophrenic. So I've spent a large part of my life trying to, I guess, untangle myself from this identity. Um, ashamedly so, you know, it's kind of been about paddling and clawing yourself out of some of the humiliation that's associated with this green passport. And, and conversations in the house to date kind of really center around, is there a way to buy ourselves and our daughters out of this starting point that we got born into? And can we cocoon ourselves with, with a better padded kind of identity? Um, and, and I find that so, I find that so problematic, this, this idea of buying a passport and yet we talk about it, like almost like you're buying organic cheese off a farmer's market, you know, if you will. And yet on the other hand, Tishani, as I traversed the world, you know, both physically, but also just through literature, through visual art and storytelling and through dance and music, I realized that Pakistan is something I want to lean into from time to time. You know, it may not yield me those instrumental benefits that another passport might, but I want to still stay wired into the emotional quotient of that place that I call home. And I found writing and especially fiction to be a very powerful mechanism to kind of deal with this uncertainty that, that I tackle on a day-to-day basis. And I think it's because when you mention nostalgia, for me, I think the biggest thing when I think about home um, and when I think about literature is it evokes a kind of wounded attachment, a kind of a wounded nostalgia. And I find having written Skyfall and some of the other work that I'm doing, I find that to be a very powerful way of trying to make sense of this rather conflicted and schizophrenic push and pull that keeps going on. And so when people ask me, is Skyfall autobiographical as a lot of debut works? I'm like, yes and no, because it's a red light area in Lahore, which is which stands at a great departure from my own life and comfort zone, as I knew it in Pakistan. And yet, of course, there are strands and, and, and themes that have really made their way in. Um, and that's why I think Abu Dhabi really features as a character in my thought paradigm as I was writing the book. So, so yeah, that's why I've called it a blood-soaked love letter because it's quite polemic that way. Uh, Saba, you also introduced me to a word that I'd never heard before, which is expatsplaining. Um, and um, I was quite struck by that. And I think, you know, we've talked about uh, the sense of the difference, you know, the, you know, the migrant, the expat. Uh, uh, and I think you had also mentioned earlier about the politics of representation, who, who gets to speak for whom, uh, the question of audience, the charge of exoticizing homeland. And so um, I think, you know, could you speak a little bit about how you navigated some of these things while writing your novel, These Concerns? Yeah, I mean, it was a term that I came across in the Dawn newspaper, which is one of Pakistan's oldest papers. 
And immediately kind of, I moved into a very defensive posturing of thinking, hey, like I'm part of that category, you know? And, and I realized that this comes up so much in politics, but it also comes up so much in literature. Um, a, few, a few months ago, Tishani, I was on Twitter and, and Twitter rooms were ablaze with this conversation around why does literature from and about Pakistan always go back to the same thematic terrain? Why are we always listening to fiction that has to include talk about mangoes, that has to include talk about the damp smell of earth after rainfall, that has to talk about particular trees? And, and you know, why are, we, why are we not kind of moving beyond that exploration? And I think I found that, I found it very troubling because I realized kind of it goes back to where I began my definition of diaspora to your first question, which is like, I don't want to be embroiled in, the, in this Olympics of nationalism, if you will. I don't want to be having to prove whether I'm, I, I sort of have to earn this status of being able to talk about my country. And it takes me back, Tishani, to this beautiful um, exploration or this beautiful rather articulation that Mohsin Hamid does about the immigrant experience and about um, so much of what we're talking about today. And he says, you know, we're all migrants through time. And so you might realize that I'm living in Karachi for like the last X number of years and I've moved nowhere physically. And yet nostalgia gets evoked. And yet I feel like I could be looking at places in through a voyeuristic lens. And so I feel like I feel like with the book, though, I have to say, I wasn't unaware that it is easy to produce a very cookie cutter template of what a Pakistani novel could look like. The same kind of, you know, extremes of women, the same kind of religious terrorism exploration and all of that. And I realized, but this is part of my everyday embodied reality. It's what makes me see, that's what bothers me. So of course, it's going to make its way into my writing. And yet the way I tackled it, or I'd like to think I tackled it was, I realized I don't think being on the same thematic terrain is as much the issue as it is about, are we digging this well deep enough? And, you know, the other day I was, I was watching one of these, maybe, maybe you and Sabine caught it as well, but I was watching one of these beautiful micro plays that the art center had produced and a woman out of Nairobi was performing it. And then there was a talk subsequently. And she said something that I found so compelling, which is linked to this. She said, are we using are we using art to kind of dig up the dirt and dig up the grave enough? You know, because that's definitely, are we, you know, are we making people uncomfortable enough through this theatrical lens? And I think that for me was closer to the, what I was trying to do with fiction. I was trying to reclaim. Uh, I was trying to say there's more to kind of these stories than these very polarized, cut up doll narratives. And I think that's how I kind of tried to get around it. It wasn't so much about, can I talk about terrorism? Can I talk about women? Can I talk about violence? I've talked about all of that. But I just want to kind of be able to take people backstage and say, this was my raw material for doing it. It's not just as superficial to gloss over. Yeah. Um, can I um, respond? Yes, I, yeah, I want you to get in on this as well. <laughs> You know, um, I thought that was that was really interesting. Uh, one thing that you said really caught my attention, which was, you know, when you were talking about um, this Twitter storm, um, you 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 talked about, you know, that nostalgia does um, does filter in at some point, and then you also talked about this kind of agitation. Um, 
about a kind of exoticization or uh, romanticization um, of the land or a hyper critique of the land that diasporic writers write about. And I wonder that to some extent, is that, does that not occur? Uh, this, because when you are looking at something from a distant distance, um, the experience, the lens does get filtered at some point or the other. Um, and I see this because um, when I wrote my first novel, Nobody Killed Her, and I was living in London, and I was writing a story, um, a local story, and I wanted to create a character, you know, a female character who was very empowered, et cetera. And, you know, I did it. But when, after that, when I moved to Pakistan for five years, and um, my next project was going to be Hijab Hassan, where I was going to research stories of, um, you know, very empowered women who wore the veil. Um, and to some extent, I felt that criticism of focusing in on those treasured memories of mangoes and, you know, the scent of wet, uh, wet earth and, you know, those beauty, beautiful memories and, you know, a selective memory which ignores the idea of, you know, the fact that there is no electricity or there is, you know, um, crash stuck in the brain pipes, etc. And that, you know, that, that kind of implicit bias that exists and that sense of uh, danger, you know, when as a woman you're stepping out on the road and that also the idea of class privilege that comes in um, becomes becomes a very sort of um, a real factor and it strips your writing of that kind of romantic lens or that kind of nostalgic lens and when you're writing in the present moment and, and I'd, I'd be really interested to hear how you feel um, writing while you were living in Pakistan and writing um, as a diasporic, whether that lens really does get filtered by a kind of selected nostalgia or whether that really is um, what we want to write about. And also how the place that we are in and the alienation of it and you know what you called about the, the stay in Abu Dhabi being you know, something that you treasure, but that feeling of impermanence because of a green passport, how that also then makes one's reminiscence a bit, bit rosy, a bit romanticized by all that is good rather than a kind of a critical reality of people who live the life every day. So I'd be interested in hearing both of your views on that. Tishani, do you want to take that or should I go? Um, no, I think you should because I'm sure. here in the moderator <laughs> function. <laughs> I personally think that you should be able to uh, write. I think that it's about holding these disparities together. And I think that it's difficult for me to say that one cannot write about something, you know, uh, cannot write about mangoes, cannot write about the wet earth without holding a certain place. And I think partly um, it's, it's because that is very much a part of the lived experience of having been there. But I think I'm also a person who has been living, in my case, in India more than having been out. So um, it maybe is a different relationship and I don't stand at such a distance to it, even though I do feel 
like an outsider. And so those questions of, um, I guess, uh, authenticity and finding a, a way to represent something that feels true is always at the top of your head as a fiction writer. You want to, you want to find that thing that you feel is, is, um, is honest, you know? Yeah, I, I guess what I meant was that, you know, when you read the writings in, in a Urdu Women's Digest, and you read an Anglophone writer, uh, whether it's diasporic or whether it's class privilege, that lens does change. So to some extent, I mean, obviously everyone has the right to write about what moves them. But I feel that at some point, uh, we can't dismiss the experience of those people who feel that there is another side as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to, uh, maybe Sabah, if you want to come back to this later and it occurs to you, please do. But I just want to push forward uh, because I want to talk about um, women. <laughs> this is about female diasporic voices. And I was thinking of something that Anuradha Roy, who I, I consider one of the great Indian novelists writing today, uh, she had said once how, um, you know, how fiction that chooses the domestic for its fear is you know so particularly fiction that is populated by women is routinely considered narrow and feeble not capable of representing nation and in fact she's somebody who celebrates the small who's always writing about the small town in india and 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 i definitely think that uh, those stories uh, layered one upon the other do make up the story of nation and the stories of women do make up the stories of nation so i think um her her um, her charge that the domestic um, is political is a very important one. And I wondered in both of your books, because you do have women and stories at the center of them, um, could you talk a little bit about this question of the domestic and how uh, power can be wrought from it? Uh, Sabine, I'd love if you could go first. Yeah, sure. Um, absolutely. I think that's um, that's something that has been on the minds of uh, women writers uh, since Virginia Woolf's uh, Room of One's Own about how you know men write about war and women uh, writing about the very same thing is you know sentimental and domestic. Um, so um, I think I think it's it's um, it's it's very strange that even in this day and age. Uh, you know, um, when Rachel Cusk will write about, um, sorry about that, sorry about that, um, a story about relationships, it's um, a story about the domestic. And when uh, Rahman Alam will write about a story like that, it's a story, you know, commenting on the politics of our times. So absolutely, the personal is political and, you know, the domestic is political. Uh, the lens might be smaller. The camera is, you know, maybe set at a, at a closer lens, but it is, you know, part of a larger frame. Um, and I think... Um, it's, it's particularly important because we often are so, so engrossed in looking at the bigger picture that we don't see those tiny pixels which come together to make that picture. 
And I often feel that, you know, women's writing, and for me especially, because, you know, I didn't grow up in a very literary household with lots of books, um, I with a very few books. And, you know, the books that we did have were my mother's um, uh, Urdu Digests, um, you know, uh, which also she used to hide because they weren't supposed to be very respectable. Um, so I've grown up reading these little tales and those little stories helped me understand the larger national framework. Um, and in the Pakistani context, especially in the vernacular um, and, you know, the Anglophone, but not necessarily the diasporic Anglophone, um, there are women writers who've been constantly commenting from um, Khalda Hussain to, you know, Kishore Nahid to Femida Riaz, who were very, very much part of the, the movement of um, challenging dictatorships, challenging, um, you know, discriminatory laws like the Hudud Ordinance. So um, I, I have never really, I've always the, the first time I came to this idea that women write about the domestic and, you know, women's stories are considered domestic and men's are considered the universal experience was when I started reading Western literature. Um, because, you know, having read Isma Chuktai, who was writing about, you know, colonialism, etc. Um, Rashid Jahan, you know, who was writing about colonialism and against the Raj and against, you know, um, patriarchal interpretations of scriptures, which was quite a thing to, um, you know, uh, something that we would think twice about in the present day. So I never really thought, um, I always found this very, very conflicting that, you know, on one hand, we have such amazing role models, um, such fiery women writers. And on the other hand, you know, we had people like my mother who would be, you know, hiding their stories uh, because of this kind of, you know, national narrative of how a woman should be. Um, and I began to sort of make sense of this when I um, began to understand, you know, when I read history and when I understood uh, what it means um, to have power, to have a voice, and how um, sometimes we construct narratives to hold on to that power. And in, you know, in, in our case, you know, um, the country came into being on the basis of the two-nation theory. So there was this need for this, you know, very strong national identity and a cultural identity. And, you know, even though our culture is that of Gandhara and Indus Valley, um, we, you know, uh, privileged um, the religious identity. And with those, uh, you know, patriarchal interpretations of what gender roles are and how those stories were then constructed. Um, but for me, I have never really, really understood this idea of how we can ignore the stories of women which stem from the home, you know, which is the basis of where ideas are generated, where nations are actually formed, uh, not just in the drawing room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think uh, something in the stories that really comes through is that there is sort of this variety of women in very different situations, and they are exercising agency in every story, in every way, uh, sometimes small acts, sometimes very large and defiant acts. And I was really struck by 
that sense of power as opposed to sort of power that we think of as state or politicians or corporations. But yeah, just the basic every day, I'm going to exercise this right, this agency in my life, uh, even though I live in this particular system. Sabah, um, could you talk a little bit about this? Because even your character, Rania, has all these restrictions and she really um, goes quite far from that. So um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, this question of creating agency uh, for your character, characters. Yeah, you know, I think what sort of motivated me to produce that character, but also kind of the smaller characters around her who might have less airtime on pages, but, but I feel are equally sort of indispensable was that, you know, we, it, it's linked to what Sabine and you both were saying that we tend to think of power and agency and kind of galvanizing people into action in this very structured and loud kind of way. And, and I think that has its own place. That kind of activism definitely has its own place. Um, but even if I look back at what's happening, say, with, with the feminist movement in Pakistan right now, um, I, I think we're at a stage and a time where what's happening is very important and it's compelling. But at the same time, I almost feel like, unfortunately, sometimes there's this sense that it's happening at the cost of capturing the slightly more quietly fierce or quietly confident voices. You know, I mean, not every protest needs to be with a placard from a rooftop. And I think with Rania and some of the other characters, I was very aware, like Asher's character, who's, from, who's the boy from across the border, the idea was to say that even as a male, you know, you're not, the domestic is A, not mutually exclusive, and you don't necessarily need to be foaming at the mouth in order to be agentic. And I think Sabine brought up such a great example of Ismat Jukhtai because I feel like we tend to think of kind of modernist writers as oh now kind of trailblazing. But actually in South Asia, that's been happening a long time. And, you know, you've got pieces like um, Chotika Jora, etc., which are very powerful where they were they were so political and you know they were they were they were taking up really big concepts and i feel at the end of the day like there is there's absolutely no way of disentangling um the personal from the political but i also feel when people talk about the political and they talk about women's voices there tends to be this idea of oh like is there a universality you know is there is there one way in women in in, in which women across the world write and I find that, I mean, I struggle with that quite a, quite a bit because when I think about anything universal, it evokes this imagery of kind of something quite concrete and something quite monolith, which is hard to tear down and which is kind of, which feels a little bit intimidating. And so I feel like what the personal as a springboard then does is it allows you to have those little dissimilar nuggets that eventually constitute you know, the bigger political or the universal or whatever you want to call it. And I think I've really, I've really started thinking about this differently, which is to say, I want to be part of the chorus as a woman writer, as a writer, whatever labeling one wants to do. But at the end of the day, I also want to be very, very cognizant that that shouldn't detract or dilute those, those other seemingly tinier and trivial stories, because I don't think they are trivial, you know. And so I, 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 think, I think that becomes quite a delicate balance. And that's what I tried to do with, with some of the themes and some of the characters. Not least of all, Tishani, also because when we think about places like Pakistan, the typical view of the Pakistani woman is quite polarized. So she's either veiled and oppressed or she's either fast and vile. 
And I kind of wanted to use fiction and its texture to say, what's happening with the grays and what's happening somewhere in between that, you know? And so I guess, I guess, I guess I just thought we have to think about agency in slightly more innovative ways. And I've tried to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the role of technology uh, in, in your work and technology as a sort of threat and technology as a means of freedom for your female characters. Sabine, in your stories, the mobile phone is this terrifically powerful tool. It's linked not only just to agency, but uh, in terms of having some sort of freedom, but also to certain amount of sexual freedom and choices. And I thought it was such an interesting um, uh, addition uh, to uh, the idea of diasporic literature because we always used to think of, you know, previously it was the idea of the long letters that, you know, the letters take so long to come and then the phone call is so expensive and somehow this added to the incredible sense of loss and yearning because that distance was amplified and technology has in a way uh, leveled that distance uh, for for everybody, uh, but I think it's also a, 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 it can be a threatening thing, or it has been. So I wonder if both of you could speak to that role of technology and how um, it comes through in your fiction for your for your women. Sabine. Um, yeah, I um, I've been um, for some time very interested in this whole idea of, um, of what's known as techno feminism or um, the digital age of uh, female empowerment, and I think um, it began with um, the first Aurat uh, March um, in Pakistan a couple of years ago, where um, I was teaching at at a university in Pakistan, and I had a lot of young students, undergrads, and I saw the impact of the you know how they managed to mobilize public opinion and support and how they use technology to really you know get people out on the streets and um for someone like me um that was incredible to actually you know i mean i had heard about the power of technology but i mean for me it always been very dismissive of social media um you know it's intrusive this is but that was the first time that i really saw it happening um and it it sort of changed my perspective as to how I viewed it. And I became much more sensitive to technology around me. I began to pay more attention to um, the lady who used to uh, come um, to help me in my house, you know, domestic workers. And I never really quite paid attention um, to the fact that, you know, the phone was almost like, a, you know, a bodily attachment. Um, she was always on the phone. And it was a way of, um, it was something that, you know, um, made life entertaining for her or easier for her. She was either listening to songs or she was talking to her friends. And um, it seemed a kind of a liberation. You know, it seemed very empowering. And, you know, I suppose my generation had grown up uh, very suspicious of technology. I associated it with surveillance, with scrutiny, um, with invasion of privacy. And suddenly I was seeing it in a whole new light. And um, I began to see how it was actually also a platform for women's voices. And then, um, you know, there were some very interesting um, cyber celebrities in Pakistan. Unfortunately, one of them um, um, was a uh, victim of honor killing. 
Um, so there were many stories of how um, technology was being used to empower um, uh, women or being used by women to empower themselves, to have a voice. There were also many horror stories of repercussions, of trolling, of you know, shaming women for speaking out. The Aurat March itself, you know, had uh, state action against it. Um, so that for me was really interesting. But what, uh, what I found fascinating was um, not just the fact that it gave them a voice, but it also um, was a way of asserting their sexuality. And this was something I had not seen um, in my part of the world before. It was something very new to me. It was, they were crossing boundaries that, you know, that line that was drawn against uh, around them, they were able to step out. So in a way, Sita was about able to step out and there wasn't that sort of, scrutiny or questioning. And I think in many ways, um, it was liberating. And it uh, also brought into, of course, um, focus the, the sort of class disparities of how technology was being used. And, um, you know, who got to who gets to use tech technology to speak up and who gets punished and penalized for it, like we saw in the case of Kandil Baloch. But um, yeah, um, very interesting times that we live in. <laughs> Yeah, Sabai, I wonder whether you wanted to comment because, you know, you have the Dilbar Cyber Cafe and then Ranya's a reality TV show. You have a character, uh, you know, Honey, who says how technology has put the pimps out of business. Everything is online now. Uh, so just in terms of a power, a sense of power and a sense of technology as threat or or freedom for your characters. Do you Did you want to add anything to that? And I think I'll have to open up soon. I have one quick question and then I'll open up for questions from the audience that have already come in the box here. But yeah. Yeah, I think really quickly, Tishani, it's done, it's done two things, I think, as far as when I think about South Asia, but I think about the world more generally. And then I think about my my place with fiction in it. And I think one part of it is, you know, a big part of Skyfall talks about female desire and this kind of fetish for purity when it comes to women's bodies and women's choices. And um, I think I was reading one of your poems, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, where you'd used a line, something like, you know, desire is like it, it's a strange kind of ruin, you know, when you think about women's desires. And that's very much the point of uh, a large part of Skyfall is really going in that direction. And. I feel that on the one hand, when you think about businesses like prostitution and the sex trade, yes, you know, a lot of it is moving online. Pakistan's slower with that move, but obviously that's happening. Um, and it's it's changing our idea and our really romanticized notion of um, kind of the old courtesans and that sort of thing. Um, but I also see desire in that very allied to what Sabine was saying, which is that you know, I don't represent most of the women in my country, but yet what technology has done is a woman sitting very far off also has windows opened into, you know, as Daniel Moinuddin's book says, like in other world, in other rooms, other wonders. And it's very much that idea to say with the click of a button, she suddenly, you know, kind of it's very, it's got a very um, strong potential to transport. So I think that's one part of it. But with Skyfall, I think the other really important message that I was trying to put out with technology was that there is such a danger and that's where it becomes threatening to say, 
there's blackmail and there's this kind of power that men then can start exerting to say, well, I was recently uh, hearing about, about a short film that I think was made in India. I can't remember, maybe it was India where, you know, um, this girl sends this video of herself dancing to the boy and eventually it turns into this absolute spiraling into blackmail and threatening and those sorts of things. And there's a part in Skyfall where, you know, we, we really deal with that and, and, and where there is pushback to say, well, there's a danger to virality, you know, especially when it comes to this quest for women's purity. And so I think I think I find it very complicated and I think um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, but I find it quite conflicted. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that's fair. So I have one last question quickly before I get to the box, the chat box. Um, I was listening to a talk that Wole Soyinka gave and Wole, as you know, was a guest uh, of the Institute as well. And he was talking, interestingly, someone said, oh, I heard that you went and stole this art piece and brought it back to Nigeria. And he laughed and he said, I have a problem with the word steal. And he went on to say how it was an act of recovery to bring back this object back to the place where it had full cultural, historical and spiritual meaning. And I was really interested in the word recovery, um, particularly when we were talking about diaspora, which is about the dispersing, the scattering. And I can't help but think of so many objects and artifacts that have been taken from countries and put in museums um, uh, in the colonial, you know, in in in, in uh, out of that country, and and uh, it, you know, it's not surprising that sort of the first one of the first Hindustani words that entered the English vocabulary was loot from lootna, which is plunder. And I I really think um, that says a lot about the balance of power equations. And if we think about fiction and diasporic fiction as this dispersing, is it possible also to think, which is always about fragmentation and exile and loss, uh, can we think of this fiction as recovery and reclamation instead? And if both of you could give quick answers and then I'll get your next questions ready. I? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. I'm happy to jump in. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting you say that, Dishani, because as I was thinking about the talk today, and as I've thought about the book post its publication, I guess the three words that have come to my mind is just like the reclamation project. And I think I see, especially fiction, as a very strong, a very strong tool to do that. And this kind of goes back to what Sabine was initially asking me that. You know, yeah, there may be this sense of romanticizing or being voyeuristic or kind of um, looking at things through a rose-colored lens. But I guess I can speak for myself to say that memory is such a tricky kind of funny mental mining sort of thing. And somewhere with the reclamation project, I'm seeing it as a confluence of memory, imagination, um, privilege, whatever, all of those things being tossed into a kind of laboratory. But at the end of the day, my nostalgia, my memories, my imagination, they're part of what I'm taking out of a toolbox to get that story through. It's not necessarily the soul of the book that I, or the story that I'm trying to tell. The soul of the story is very much underpinned by this desperation and this craving to reclaim and to, and to kind of take charge. And I think it's about pushing the envelope on trying to reclaim because I feel like I've spent all these years before Skyfall was published trying to decenter, always kind of having gripe about why is it white male writing that is speaking about, about 
my home? Why am I not seeing more people who look like me, who talk like me, you know, in, in my writing? And so for me, I think um, whether I'm writing with the status of a diasporic writer or whether it was my writing when I was back home, the whole idea is to try and kind of reclaim and reclaim in a way that is very cognizant of the local vernacular. So even with Skyfall, Sabine, I'm not sure if you've read it, but um, I definitely believe that th that hope and our movement from darkness to light doesn't come at the expense of trying to downsize what's going on, you know, without, of course, sensationalizing, but not trying to trivialize the problems that kind of people's everyday politics embodies. So that's my little quick answer. I hope it was quick, Dishani. <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I'd just say that, you know, when we talk about fiction as recovery, um, yes, it can be healing, but for whom, right? For the writer, perhaps. And um, I, and I'm just speaking for myself, but um, I do feel that there is an immense amount of um, satisfaction, healing, pleasure in being able to tell a story, but at some point, and perhaps it comes from, you know, my critical training, I also feel that it, there is also a kind of exploitation because can we ever really be fair to the people whose stories we're telling? And is there really, um, you know, an element of subjectivity? Um, how is it benefiting um, the people whose stories we're writing because at the end of the day um, we are writing in a language of privilege um, so who's reading those stories and at the end of the day I feel how are we different than those people who we say are not telling our stories um, so I think I think it's it's a very um, contested area for me um, and I don't know whether the word healing um, can really be used here um, without prejudice. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I'm gonna ask you some questions which have been given to the, from the audience. Um, uh, there is a question about language and uh, you've uh, briefly touched Sabine on the Urdu, uh, digests that you read um, so I'm wondering what the the question is what are the impact of foreign language in your writing whether there are other languages in play how do they speak to one another um, and Sabah if you have uh, uh, a comment you you can also answer either either one of you um Sabah you want to go first or should I sure you can go no problem um, so I suppose, I mean, if the question is, uh, why do I write in English? Um, because why? That's not the question. <laughs> What's the impact of foreign languages in your writing? Okay. Um, so I'm not quite sure I understand this, but my writing is quite disruptive in the sense that I regularly use Urdu words um, in, my in my writing. And um, I don't think I should put myself in brackets. Um, so I don't explain that, you know, if I'm saying the word matka, it means vessel. Um, I think we should make um, the effort to understand um, if we don't. Um, and um, so I think language has deep ties with sensibilities. Um, I also feel language can be um, 
a form of liberation to write what you want to write. Um, the stories that I am trying to tell, I don't feel I can uh, tell in my first language um, because um, English is the language that separates the readership. Um, and this is why, um, you know, the earlier comment about recovery and healing uh, being slightly self-centered because I feel the people whose stories I'm telling are probably not able to read the stories that I'm writing. And how authentic then is the representation? Yes, you know, I agree that, you know, some feelings um, are universal and that experience of marginality that I share with Pakistani women um, and the women that I'm writing about is there. But then how, how accurate or how authentic is it um, in that sense. And does it really matter? Because if, you know, if writing is and confluence of imagination and sorry, Shashani, uh, you seem like... So, you know, is your work translated into Urdu and available? Well, I have written in Urdu and I got such a reception that I decided if I write now, it will be for myself. Okay. Uh, there's a question here, maybe Sabah, you want to take this, uh, and that is about the question of diaspora. How different is the experience of diaspora for men versus women, especially in the Gulf? And how does this shape your crafting of characters? Do you feel you could answer that? Yeah, yeah, I love that question. Um, you know, it's something, I mean, I've thought about both consciously, but then I think it's somewhere in a latent sense at the back of my mind a lot. And I, I think it's a great question because... Um, we moved to Abu Dhabi, like I said, about six years ago. And before that, I was in Doha. And I think what the experience of kind of being here through a more gender dimension has done for me is um, it's really, as humans, you know, we're wired to be empathetic. And that's something that, you know, has, has really stayed top of mind for me as I've thought about building out worlds, crafting characters and things like that. Now, a lot of my writing is about violence against women. Like I was saying, it's about chasing purity. It's about women's desire invoking a kind of fear. And I think being in Abu Dhabi for me has produced a kind of, um, I don't know what word to use. I don't know whether I want to use allyship. I don't know whether I want to use chorus. But there is this sense of a shared vulnerability and a shared celebration at the same time when I think about things related to women. And somewhere what that's allowed me to do in my writing is move from this sense of pity and, and kind of wallowing, going down this rabbit hole of feeling like, oh my gosh, everyone else is writing about us or this, that, the other, we're being pigeonholed, to something which I'd like to believe galvanizes me a little bit more and which is just more constructive. And so I think... I think my tone and vocabulary in the way that I produce female characters, and it's interesting because, because the range of exchanges is just so enriching. It, it could be with a student at NYU. It could be over shisha with someone in a cafe. It could be, um, it could just be a range of things. And somewhere I feel like um, there's this real synergy that gets created out of a place like Abu Dhabi, not least of all because 
there is such a confluence of 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 cultures and language and all of you know food and everything i mean you think about the veil and i'm like the different permutations of that i think about arabic language and i think about the different combinations and versions and somehow that allows me when i'm putting female characters together it allows me to really think of them in ways that i feel are empowering but yet not empowering in the typical way that we think of empowering within a western framework so i think i think abu dhabi has been very seminal for me in that sense great thanks uh, saba uh, here's another question maybe sabine you could take this one uh, where does uh, multi identity tie into the points about your identity and the stories you are trying to tell example being raised in one country while being from another or being biracial or etc um uh, or having been living in many different countries as as you have uh, does the authenticity of the points you'd be trying to relate still matter to everyone in your opinion um that's a great question and i think um living in various places um that's the one thing that it does it makes you humble and it makes you realize that the story that you are telling is important but it is not necessarily everyone's experience it's something that you are crafting and putting out there um but also you know uh, this idea of identity and how it is constructed i think living in various places what it does is it helps deconstruct your identity and sometimes you feel so shattered because you don't have an identity and fiction really helps you take on various identities and you know you're really able to pull yourself into the experience of other people and again i'm very skeptical of this whole idea of saying that you know i can represent someone um just the way we are um hesitant or skeptical about people of a different culture or nationality representing a uh, native experience i think as you know diasporic people or people living in other lands i have the same reservations about myself um but i think one thing um that i am able to see perhaps a little bit more um differently now is um the what empowerment means in my stories you know how it is not something which is straightforward it's something very very complex and it's something which is actually very individualistic and not a sort of a collective um and i think for me that comes because i have always been uh, forcefully moved to places it has never been my choice and because i i left when I didn't have um you know higher education in Pakistan I didn't have the opportunity to go to one of its you know it has lots of amazing universities now alums and habib and ib and i was not one of those people who got a chance to go i was you know forcibly um, removed um, i moved because of marriage i moved countries because i was you know following uh, my family um abu dhabi is actually the first place where I have made a move out of choice and I can see that the lens for me has completely changed and I am now able to um look at my surroundings and see things from I would say slightly more privileged um sense because I am able to voice stories with a sense of security and like um Sabha said you know be part of very interesting conversations and 
feel that I have um, that kind of security to write what I want uh, within limits, of course, um, but not have that sort of sense of fear um, that I had when I was uh, back home about what uh, are the parameters parameters of, you know, a woman's voice, uh, what are the topics that I can write about, uh, what are the topics in I, that I can write about in English, but not in my own language. So in that sense, you know, the identity, the idea of identity has become the idea of self-knowledge. Sabha, you have uh, the last word. It has to be quick because we are past eight and I'm sorry we couldn't get to all the, the questions in here, but I hope that the discussion has been varied enough. But yeah, please uh, give us your last uh, thought to close out. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think um, I think about the topic that we've discussed a lot, but I found I think today was so important because a lot of times in our book talks, it's not something that kind of becomes the, the kernel of the conversation. And as I think about Abu Dhabi, its role in my life, in our lives, in our writing, in our stories, I think I think. You know, I, I, Sabine's spoken about privilege. I've spoken about loss, all of those kinds of stew, that stew of influence and ingredients. But I think for me, perhaps the most powerful thing that being in Abu Dhabi has done is that I find it to be such a metaphor and such an experiment for a lot of things. And most of all, which is very closely allied to Skyfall and a lot of my other writing, is this possibility of coexistence. And I think, as I was saying to you earlier, there is so much, there's a kind of syncretism that is flowing through the corridors of Abu Dhabi and the UAE and the Gulf in general, which frankly, I haven't found in an identical fashion or form before. And, and I think my closest analogy to that, funnily, because the two places couldn't be more dissimilar, whenever I think about tossing all of these nationalities in this experimental way, I would think of the first time I landed in New York. And, and yet I feel like these two cities couldn't be more different. So I feel like I feel like what, what Abu Dhabi as a place has really offered me in, in specially fiction writing is it's allowed me to invite readers into a world where we can imagine coexistence, at least as an aspirational currency, you know, where we can think about celebrating the sense of diversity beyond window dressing. And, and kind of, I feel like when I think about Abu Dhabi, I think about a kind of quiet confidence that it exudes. And somewhere Skyfall is very much about, about this yearning for peaceful coexistence and about realizing that, um, you, you, you know that that we need to think about diversity in ways that are that are more profound, and so I think I think the last thing I'll say is that I, I think I drew this analogy with you in one of our earlier interviews, Tashani. But every time I think about Abu Dhabi and I think about my writing, it always takes me back to music, and I think of a Fez Ahmed Fez Ghazal, or I think about an Abda Parveen uh, piece or a Nusrat Fateh Ali piece, and it's filled with chaos and it's filled with confusion, and there's so much going on. And yet at the end, I can distill from that something very simple. I can just distill folk music. And, and that is what this yearning for coexistence does for me. And I think Abu Dhabi is a beautiful illustration of that. And, um, you know, in, in that sense, it always gets woven into my work. Okay. 
Well, um, we'll have to close now. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, and so we couldn't even have readings. But uh, I just wanted to thank the institute and to thank uh, Saba and Sabine, and I hope that some of these ideas um, will go away thinking about what it means to leave something behind and how we hold on to the past, how that helps us to write, how that helps us to shape the future and think about the present times that we are living through. So thank you to both. Um, and these are the books again. So yeah, bye for now, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.